0: This is the CMS Colloquium podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. Welcome to today's CMS Colloquium, Ambiguity Process and Information Content and Minimal Music, which is The talk will be delivered by Michael Cuthberth, who uh, is a visiting assistant professor of music at MIT. He's worked extensively on 14th century music and on music of the past 40 years. He's a recipient of the Rome Prize of the American Academy. And he earned his PhD from someplace also in Cambridge, uh, i.e. Harvard uh, in 2006. So with that said, I'm going to turn it over to our speaker. Um,
1: So one of the, I'm going to speak from over here if you don't mind because that's where my laptop is. Uh, One of the unquestioned truisms of today is that we're bombarded by more information now than at any time in the past. And we see this assumption throughout popular interpretations of culture whether, or just in our daily lives, whether it's a group of middle-aged managers um, gathered around wowed by the newly hired whiz kid who's the only one who can set up the database or um, whether it's a paper I saw analyzed in the New York Times on the increasing complexity of um, of television show plots in today compared to in the 60s and 70s and it's for this reason that they Say, uh, we need better tools for data analysis, visualization. We need laws preventing the use of iPods and cell phones while crossing the streets, some of them. Or just more self-help books in general. But despite all these complications, what's really surprising is, of course, human's ability to keep up with um, increasing information. Uh, If you've seen um, Malcolm Gladwell's book Blink, what's it's a real documentation of our ability to make these snap judgments in the face of of conflicting, complex information at any time, and it's also, in its bestseller status, a testimony to our fascination with our own abilities this way. And of course, music has not at all been immune to uh, perceived or real increase in complexity. A complex score from uh, around 1750, don't worry, you don't need to read any music uh, for this talk, but I will put some up. Um, From the 1740, 1750, uh, really can't hold a candle to uh, what's considered a complex score in the early 20th century. Uh, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, this is a subset of a score that's about three times the length. Or, to say nothing of more recent, Here's a piece by Brian Ferneyhough in the early 70s, a Time in Motion Study 2, where if you can read music, you'll probably say that that's almost uh, illegible music. Um, and this is an entire score to be played by one performer, one cellist, who in addition to having completely independent parts for the left and the right hand, has independent parts for um, each of his or her feet, these little things that control the pedals, and wrist monitors. And then later, um, we'll have to sing with the microphone on the throat at the same time. So all these things are continuing. But what I want to really talk about today is the counter movement in music. And this has been the movement since about the early 60s of increasing increasing simplicity. And the idea that a counter movement would counter any major any major development isn't that unusual perhaps what's unusual is the reception that the move toward greater simplicity has had and the way it's captivated many people um, and held their listening attention and this movement towards trick simplicity in the 60s really is also based on a return toward more consonant um, more harmonious we could say sounding music highly amplified instruments and repeated strongly rhythmic lines. So despite the fact that in many ways this movement, the greater complexity, is successful, the counter movement, minimalism, as we'll call it, um, has been greatly more successful. And its influence has been seen throughout not only classical music and classical compositions, but rock composers, trance, um, disco, uh, many dance movement forms and also is one of the more ubiquitous styles for soundtracks of films today so what is it about minimal music or minimalist music that could hold the attention of we who have been called the most distractible generation ever today I'm going to argue that there's an underlying complexity in a lot of minimal music which is based on ambiguity and these, many of these types of ambiguity are things that we can perceive, sorry, that exist in other repertories, but which aren't nearly so easily perceived. And by stripping away many of the other layers of, um, of distractions, other layers of signification from the music, we, we can see ambiguity in minimal music that we would never have noticed before. So I want To present this and then maybe at the end or in the discussion talk about ways that we can hear and perceive such ambiguity in other music. Maybe music that's more familiar. I know not everybody um, does come in, comes in with a really strong knowledge of this music, so I thought I would just play um, a minute or two of a piece of minimal music. And this is one of the seminal works by Philip Glass. For his ensemble, music in fifths, and fifths are consonant interval, uh, generally speaking, prohibited in most common practice, 18th, 19th century music. So we'll just listen to the opening. Now there's many points that have been made by others in in literature on the ambiguity of perception in a piece like that, the way that um, despite there not actually existing such lines, we begin to hear elements, boom, 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 as existing independently, just the extreme notes, the highest and the lowest. Uh, But that's not going to be the main focus of my talk today. I want to talk about some of the ways that we perceive the rhythm in different ways. Glass is most famous for his collaboration, or infamous, we could say, notorious, with uh, Robert Wilson on Einstein on the Beach. Um, here's a shot of actual Einstein and the way he's depicted in the opera. Einstein on the Beach is an opera of about um, four to five hours length with no intermission, with no actual characters except Einstein's uh, throughout the stage, with no sung text with no story and it takes a lot of its images from the conventional view of einstein that is with the large hair the suspenders uh he was an amateur violin player so he plays the violin a lot in the piece he um at one point answered uh interviewer's question about what he could do in life if he could do anything else besides be a physicist and he said he'd be a plumber so all the Stage furniture is made out of plumbing supplies uh, just things like that and also taking a lot of the stage diagrams from conventional uh, sort of standard physics text examples that Einstein popularized here's one that shows um, one of the results of special relativity that when you're nearing the speed of light you can see both the front and the side of a building simultaneously on the right as depicted in a physics textbook and on the left as used as scenery for Wilson and Glass's opera. <coughs> one of the things that Glass does a lot in the opera is make use of repeated processes. And I'll, I'll say a little bit about what that might, how we can define that in a bit. But basically one of the important things is, and we heard this also in Music fifths, that you take a small cell. And then you augment it by adding on smaller parts of that cell to itself. So here we can see um, if we have a cell A, which is a five note group at the beginning, we can augment it by adding one note on either side, then turning it upside down. Then we can, we can play around with it um, to create various structures in the piece. And this is what's used in one part of Einstein on the Beach. So we can listen to the solo violin played by one of the Einsteins. Another element that's used throughout um, the opera that is also introduces a lot of ambiguity in how we perceive it is the use of two different motives or two different sort of rhythmic cells, rhythmic and melodic cells, of different length, which are played against each other. So here, on the left, we have a three-note cell, da da di da da di da da which is played against a four-beat cell, yada da da di da da, da 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 da, one and two and three and four and etc and when these two cells are played against each other it takes 12 beats the uh, least common multiple of the two in order for them to line up again so you end up either hearing the bottom the bottom cell as the base cell above which the other cell destabilizes it or we can hear the top cell as the stable cell against which the bottom one is a destabilizing influence Throughout the course of, say, a 20-minute, 30-minute passage, which contains nothing but one or two cells played against each other, you're going to choose one to hear at a a certain point and another to hear at another point. And when you return to the opera for another listening, you're likely to choose other um, sort of paths of listening. We can listen to this in um, the first section of Einstein on the Beach. What you'll hear is, the bottom three note cell played 16 times and then see if you can follow how the top cells interact with it in a constantly shifting manner. Ba-da-dee, ba-da-dee, one-two-three, one-two-three, (laughs) one-two-three. Another unusual element to spring up and also to give you another picture of the piece is just the amount of conventional repetition of unconventional materials. So that the text, a uh, nonsense text in the following scene will just be repeated over and over. And this is uh, the prematurely air-conditioned supermarket scene.
2: July, blooms on them, they were red and yellow and blue, and I wasn't tempted to buy one, but I was reminded of the fact that I had been avoiding the beach. I was in this prematurely air-conditioned supermarket, and there were all these aisles, and there were these bathing caps that she could buy, that had these kind of 4th of July blooms on them, red and yellow and blue, and I wasn't tempted to buy one, but I was reminded of the fact that I had been avoiding the beach. I was in this prematurely air-conditioned supermarket, and there were all these aisles, and there were these bathing caps that you could buy that had these kind of 4th of July pins on them, and I wasn't tempted to buy one, but I was reminded of the fact that I had been avoiding the beach. I was in this prematurely air-conditioned supermarket, and there were all these aisles, And there were these bathing caps that you could buy that had these kind of 4th of July plumes on them that were red and yellow and blue. And I wasn't tempted to buy one, but I was reminded of the fact that I had been avoiding the beach. I was in this prematurely air conditioned supermarket, and there were all these islands. And there were these bathing caps that you could buy that had these kind of 4th of July plumes on them that were red. And yellow and blue. And I wasn't tempted to buy one, but I was reminded of the fact that I had been avoiding the beach. I was in this prematurely air conditioned supermarket, and there were all
1: these eyes. I'm to cue up the sorry, the next track for a second. One of the moments that I think is most intriguing about the way music in Einstein of the Beach and in other minimal music differs from conventional uh, Western music is the ways that people can disagree on some of the most fundamental aspects about what's happening in a piece. I'm going to do a little experiment, if you don't mind helping me with. I'm going to play a passage from uh, from Einstein of the Beach from a section called Me Too. And after a couple seconds, I hope you'll find that there's um, a regular kind of pulse or beat or whatever you want to call it that you might tap your feet to. Um, you know, it's not really toe tapping, but it's something you could. If you wouldn't mind, just sort of tapping on the um, with your hand instead of with your foot on something, what you feel the beat is when this happens, and it's going to change over time. So you're going to have to make some adjustments, but just uh, it's an interesting experiment. Here we go. It's going to begin with a little introduction. Then you'll hear the beat become regular. Right there.
3: 5127 770 seven, seven, two, 3113 two, 5555 8921 five, six, three, five, six, eight, eight, 6334122
1: What's interesting, I, I found, is the way that, that many people were tapping different pulses, uh, even though at the beginning almost everybody was tapping the same pulse. What happens, well let me just say, I'll use a really bad, much slower synthesized violin to make uh, a little bit of a point. So here, at the beginning, almost everybody was tapping the same pulse. And that was. Uh, so 1 2 3 4 5 6 1 2 3 4 5 6 1 2 3 4 6 and that that basically everybody could agree on was somewhat um, the, the the principal pulse but watch what happens on the second line
3: <laughs> or
1: so some people we were tapping with every repetition of the contour. Ya da, da, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Fewer people, but few people were tapping with the change of harmony when the chord changed. Especially at the faster speed, people were more likely to tap on that. And then with the next one, the difference between the tapping speeds became even more pronounced some people thought that the piece was continuing to get faster because they were tapping each one of the three pulse repetitions of contour on the third line
3: or one, two, three, one, two, three
1: And so depending on which of these two pulses you chose, the piece could be heard as, um, as either a continuous speeding up or continuous slowing down in the speed. And there are very few pieces that are like that. And I noticed a couple people actually were jumping back and forth, like seemed pulled in both directions. By the fourth line, no matter what you tap, you have to tap faster because there's fewer notes per contour, there's now just two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. Or if you're tapping per harmony change, there's now six instead of nine, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, etc. And then a very few people who were tapping along with the repetition of contour throughout tried to tap along at number five, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, and quickly gave up and had to switch to tapping at the change of harmony. So given here are two different ways of hearing the beat, hearing the pulse, the meter, of this part of Einstein the beach. And one of the things that you can do once you realize that both of these options uh, occur to most people, is that you can consciously shift from hearing one to hearing another, at various parts of the piece. Uh, some of the anecdotal things I've found from presenting this a number of times, people with perfect pitch that is the, the very rare musicians, maybe the lucky ones, who can just hear a note and tell you the name <coughs> of it, almost always tap with the change of the harmony. I've only met one out of 30 people with perfect pitch who did that. Um, professional musicians tend to be split about 50-50. Non-musicians tend to favor tapping with the contour versus the harmony. And it seemed about here, about 75% of people tap with the contour and about Uh, quarter tap with the harmony and then of course at the very end I showed the sort of switch where most people were tapping for the contour tap with the harmony and this sort of equilibrium where you're being pulled in two directions is very fragile all it takes um, is for instance one recording I have of this piece where there's very strong accents with the change of contour one two three one two three one two three nobody hears the change of harmony as the important point Similarly, later in the opera, you'll hear a chorus that's singing a continuous tone with each change of harmony. And this is enough to make many people start hearing the harmony as the paramount definer of beat and not the change in contour. So let's watch that section. This uh, video comes from uh, a documentary on Einstein of the Beat, so I forgive, please, the voiceover at the very end, but it's worth continuing to the end. And see if, see if you can h- choose to hear maybe a different beat than you did last time or hear more strongly one beat or the other. <laughs> Sorry. So, uh, just give it a couple seconds. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three,
3: one, three. Is that chorus?
1: that's sung in the opera is either the do-re-mi-fa-so-la-ti that you're singing or numbers. time. Everything that happens has a reason, even if we don't know what it is. So we've been talking about a lot of these um, ambiguous processes, and I thought I've been working on other definitions of process and other ways of classifying the processes that happen in a lot of recent music one of the things that I wanted to think about is just what do we mean by a musical process and I was thinking it's sort of anything that takes an input and produces an output so musical process could be take a piece of music and play it higher than before that would be one would take a piece of music play it backwards Record a piece of music that takes an input sheet music and uh, creates an output a recording But we tend to use the term process for things that are kind of simple and unambiguous Like there's only a few ways to play a piece backwards correctly Whereas there are many ways to properly record a piece and one where the thing that you get out at the end You can use as the input for the next round of a process so that for instance add one note to the melody. You can then take the melody that you get out and add another note to it. And so we uh, think about this in music quite a lot. We can kind of condense the steps of, you know, take a five-note piece and get a six-note piece and a seven-note piece and an eight-note piece, etc., all um, all in a row. So I'm interested in pieces that work entirely based on certain simple processes. Here's. One piece, a uh, rather well known piece by composer Steve Reich called Clapping Music for Two People Who Can Clap. And it consists of entirely two processes. One, it might not even be a process at all, just repeat the thing that you took in. So you take something, and one player just repeats that throughout. The other player does some repeating. First off, repeats what the other player is doing. but sometimes shifts all the notes, one note to the left. So you take the note that's um, sort of at the beginning and you put it at the end and you shift everything else over one. So you get something like, <laughs> etc. And so from this, these two very simple processes, you get a very long, and rather intricate piece, as we can hear some of it. Tend to repeat six times. divided, I found it useful to divide all processes really into two types. Bounded processes are ones that have a logical stopping point. For instance, the shift left process has a logical stopping point, or at least a possible stopping point that's not arbitrary, of when you've shifted all the way around and you're back to where you start from. In contrast are continuous processes. And these are ones where um, the ones with little flags just are short notes, and the other ones are long notes. Short, long, short, short, long, short, 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 long. There's no logical reason for me to stop at 7, except for time reasons. Um, And So this is a process that can go on forever. And you'll see most of the things I call additive processes, where you add something to what comes before, are continuous by contrast subtractive processes where you're taking something away every time really tend to be bounded because there's no negative number in music you can take things away until you reach nothing and then you have to stop or at least do something else here's a famous piece that uses a continuous process this is the this is from the musical offering uh, it's an infinite ascending canon what you do is by Bach you play the piece and when you end up at this point in the piece you go back to the very beginning but now you're one note higher than you began Uh sorry, sorry yeah. so uh, you, or you go back so you go back to the third measure and you start all over again so you can hear in some ways how this can go on forever oops So, you're just back where you started from, now a little bit higher. One thing that's interesting about this piece is that it's completely um, sort of an automated process. If we wanted to leave this on for another eight or ten hours, we could calculate where we'd be. I mean, we'd be so high up the dogs couldn't hear it, but we could figure out exactly what would be happening at that moment. Another interesting point about this piece is that it's only a continuous process for people like me and other people who don't really know the tradition of the piece that is to say it's culturally um, constrained because the tradition of these continuous canons is that you do them eight times and then you stop and so somebody who knew the tradition of a canon uh... that goes per tonos that rises through the tones um, would know or seven times or eight times would know that it's going to stop eventually and so they would have a completely different expectation and there'd be ambiguity in the piece um, in how we perceive it in that way here's another piece that has a famous um, sort of pedigree I'll I'll just let the piece explain itself Different.
4: Going to play it back into the room again and again until the resonant frequencies of the room reinforce themselves so that any semblance of my speech, with perhaps the exception of r- rhythm, is destroyed. What you will hear then by the natural resonant frequencies of the room
1: articulated by speech. So he records himself and then plays it back, and each time he re-records what happens.
4: Not so much as a demonstration of a physical fact, but more as a way to smooth out any irregularities my speech might have.
1: And then we can hear what happens when I this sitting in a room the second time through different from the one you are in now. We hear a slight shimmer.
4: I am recording the sound of my speaking voice.
1: And so we know and exactly what's time. going to happen every time. He's going to play it, he's going to record it, take the recorded tape, play that again, record it. Yet unlike the Bach example, we can't Sort of know what it will sound like. We still have to sit and experience the whole piece in order to know what it's going to happen to his voice as he plays it back over and over again. Or we can do what I do, which is cut up the whole recording and reduce a one hour piece to 40 seconds so we can hear it. So let's hear that. I'm sitting in a room. A ah, here we go. I'm
4: sitting in a room. I am sitting in a room. I am sitting in a room
3: i <laughs>
1: shortcut is uh, generally frowned on by almost all the minimalist composers but sometimes you just have to do it another thing that that they tend to do uh, many composers is they embed a process that should be continuous within something that's bounded and any time you stop a continuous process uh, you stop doing something that can go on forever it's a jolting moment so here's a piece called hoquetus uh, part a by Louis Andreessen and what happens is each of these measures can be repeated as long as you want, but then as you move from one measure to another, you begin to fill up the measures with more and more notes, these the flagged notes. So eventually, each time you decide to break the continuous process, you get further on your bounded process of filling up the measure. We'll listen to the first minute of the speed at which he chooses to fill up his measures. This is all the first measure. And any time, like I said, you break this continuous process, there's a resting moment, especially if it's been happening for a long time. What he chooses to do, though, after he's almost about to fill up his entire measure is instead start shrinking the measure, so moves to a second type of bounded process by making the measures smaller and smaller, and sort of more claustrophobic in that way. And so you constantly, with the these bounded processes, have to change what you're doing. Another piece uh, that uses two different processes is Steve Reich's Four Organs, which was premiered by the Boston Symphony Orchestra and then uh, caused a riot in its second performance in New York. It's about 20 minutes long, and it consists of two chords that kind of slowly merge into each other. So you listen to the first minute or so, which is a bounded process that's going to finish once the chords are entirely merged with each other and this measure is kind of filled up. 2 I think the moment when things began to get out of hand at the Boston Symphony was the moment when he filled up the chord and therefore completed the bounded process seen right about here and instead of finishing the piece began to make the chord longer and longer and there's something I think about the way you can scare a listener is by setting up a long process And then showing the listener that you're willing to complete a long, long process. And then say, but now we have one more process for you. And it's infinite in length. It's a continuous process. And in fact, the chord just lengthens and lengthens and lengthens over about 20 minutes till here's the second to last measure, if you can read music. Uh, We can listen to this one measure. also been interested in are there any ways that we can think of other repertories as having bounded and continuous processes and the way that we think of switching from one to another as being sort of arresting or surprising moments uh, in music or in other arts and one of the ones that I came up with that I think just works really well is a movement from a Beethoven Symphony. This is the Seventh Symphony third movement, which is um, perhaps people would have seen labeled in their book as in their programs as scherzo or maybe they'd recognize it um, as scherzo is a kind of fast triple time piece dance like and you can hear the opening that people might have heard Now, as soon as they would hear, somebody might hear this passage, uh, if, they're, if they've been to a lot of Beethoven symphonies, or any kind of symphony, or any kind of music in the early 19th century, or if they're classical buff today, uh, they know that scherzos tend to have two parts, an A part, two contrasting parts, an A part and a B part. And then you go back and you do the A part again. So anybody who recognizes the form of the scherzo would say, oh, this is a bounded type of form. It does three things and then it's done. And once you've heard those three things, piece is over. So what you wait for, if you're the listener, is the contrasting second part. And that's called the trio. Why the second part's called trio, I don't know. But And so you wait for a contrast. If you're still listening to the character. Doesn't seem to happen yet. And it's not like final chords, maybe a transition. And then something different. Okay, so he's so Beethoven's kind of following along with the contract of this scherzo so up until now. And so we'll just put this trio up there. And so now you can sort of relax as a listener that that some of your expectations are being fulfilled and you wait for the final A section. You wait for the opening of that material to come back. So we'll listen to the end of the trio And then he sort of finished the contract with the listener by writing a scherzo that you're going to go back to the beginning. And so now all expectations are confirmed. And so now as a listener, the most important thing is to listen for how he ends. Because what's supposed to come next is the end. So you listen there. So what's that? <coughs> it's the, seems to be the trio again, and so now we have sort of this this expectations sort of what the piece is supposed to do, a bounded form piece that's kind of continued beyond its expected length, and we saw that with the Andrisen and Hoketus, um, and Beethoven does that here. And so now, as a listener, you don't really know what to expect. And so it's kind of a heightened moment. Even though you're hearing the same exact same material as before, it's heard completely differently because it's a much more tense moment. It's not a moment where Beethoven is fulfilling an obligation, but it's one where he's sort of rubbing it in your face that he didn't. So you you keep listening, and you try to figure out, well, where's the trio going to end? What's it going to do? So if you listen to the end of the trio, goes right back to the beginning again and so he puts on a third scherzo at this point I don't know but as a listener I get tired of sort of being on edge of not knowing what's going on so I just assume that look what he's doing is kind of a continuous form piece he's just alternate scherzo and trio until he decides to make a big change and so I'm going to put my expectations you know sort of throw my money into the idea that he's going to do trio three right after scherzo three and so I feel pretty smart about myself when at the end of scherzo three I hear this but immediately after that, immediately after Beethoven says, lets the listener feel like oh now I know what's going on now I'm on top of the game the very next sound is So it's sort of only at the moment where you feel like, okay, now I know that the only thing the piece can't do is end. It ends. And I think classical composers play with these ideas of expectations of form and boundary and transgressed boundaries more than we give them credit for. I want to um, end with a few more brief points about, uh, sort of, I said something about information content. And that is that sometimes these... Minimal, these simple minimalist pieces are actually get really complex. Here's a piece called uh, Les Moutons de Panuge by Friedrich Zewski, and this is how the piece looks on paper. Um, it has 65 notes, and the only thing you're not allowed to do is play all the 65 notes in a row. What you're really supposed to do is play note one, then note one, note two, note one, two, three, note one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, so it's an additive form piece. The trick of the piece is that you play it very fast. 1, 1, 2, 1, 2, 3, one, 2, 3, 4, one, 2, 3, 4, 5, one, two, 3, 4, five, 6, and you play it with a large group. This would be a good sized group to play this piece in. And if and it's better, he says, with amateurs. Because Anytime you make a mistake, you're not allowed to get back with the group. You have to keep playing your own solo a little bit off from everybody else. If you go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one, two, three, four, and shoot, I was only supposed to go to eight. Well, now you're going to be one note behind everyone for the rest of the piece. So we listen to the opening. It sounds like a rather straightforward piece. Here's a percussion group. Four, five, four, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one. But usually, by a couple minutes into the piece, you start getting a few people off. And so we're going to hear the first person get off in a second. And usually, it just gets to be more and more of a mess as the piece goes on. The surprising thing might be that the piece is really not that much, much of a mess. You don't know the piece very well. This might be, a, most of you, the first time hearing it, but you can probably tell when somebody's back at the beginning again where, the, where a lot of the instruments are. If you can read music, oh I, yeah, I see there that, 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 that section. And so actually even with eight or ten instruments all playing different parts of the piece, it's actually pretty clear what's going on. Wojciechowski well, sort of creates this by making it so that um, there's only 15 places in the piece where if you hear two notes, only two notes, it could be two places. And almost nowhere, if you can just hear three notes of an instrument, it uniquely identifies where in the piece you are. And that's not true for most classical music. And if you hear four notes, you, know, you always know where you are, five notes. Uh, and So it's like the piece has every instrument in the piece has sort of a homing beacon on it or GPS or something That's telling you where they are within the piece, and you can't not hear it Here's another piece that does the same thing It's a another infamous piece from probably around 1890 by Satie, Vexacion. Uh, it's a straightforward piece You play this melody down here play this melody with some other notes in your right hand, but still the same bass. Then you play this melody again. And once you're done playing this melody, you play it again with some other notes in the right hand, and once you've done that—that that takes about I don't know two or three minutes—you just um, do the whole thing 840 times over the course of 24 hours without break. And this piece—it's—it's uh, it's one of the things that I you don't know happens only ever performed on campuses. Uh, it's one of those <laughs> type of music. But what's interesting for me is that. The intervals in the piece that is the distances between the notes and the notes themselves are um, nearly what we call all interval that is to say they're all unique basically so if you hear one interval you know where you are in the piece if you hear one sound or two sounds you know exactly where you are within the theme or within this four-note structure so again it's another one of these pieces a four-part structure. So it's another one of these pieces that constantly has homing beacons that says, I'm at this part of the piece, I'm at that part of the piece, within the small section, but it tells you absolutely nothing about where you are over the course of the the whole 840 repetition performance. I I like to think of it as like a clock that has a neon flashing second hand that goes around, but it's missing its hour and minute hands. It just, it really has kind of the same effect when you hear it. And by saying a little bit about um, sort of a new research area with me that I, that I kind of find interesting and I thought um, CMS might be a good place to do it because you guys, I think, probably know a lot more about this type of thing than me. And that is places in repetitive music, especially in opera, uh, with characters and things like this, where the characters hear that they're repeating. I mean, I'm, you know, we're... Uh, I'm interested in things like The Simpsons. When on, on The Simpsons, the, the family watches a lot of TV. How do you know when they're watching TV, whether they're watching live action TV or a cartoon? They, they make a distinction in it with, with little subtle things, but there's signals that can tell you that. Within, you know, the classical thing in opera is, how do you know when a character is singing? or how do the other characters know when somebody's singing and this goes all the way back to the first operas where maybe you do a more florid type of singing to signify your singing or maybe you say just before you sing oh is the orchestra so beautiful you acknowledge that the music is something you can hear for that moment um, and all kinds of wacky things happen you know when char- when certain characters can acknowledge what's happening and others uh... can't I, I think of um, in HMS Pinafore by uh, Gilbert Sullivan how there's there's one moment where the modern major general w- recognizes the convention or Recognize does not recognize the conventions of opera or operatic um, Music at the time that is when the characters sing we go we go we go we go we go um, He sings, but you don't go <laughs> the idea that all of a sudden he you can't uh, he, he sees what they're doing literally and not the gesture. Well, what happens when characters start noticing they're repeating? Or how do you show that somebody is repeating something when nothing else is, um, or when everything repeats? Or at what moments do you use this? So I thought we'd look a little bit at John Adams' Nixon in China for the last five minutes. Uh, this vi- for some of these various points this is an opera obviously based on the visit of uh, Richard and Pat Nixon Henry Kissinger to China to negotiate with Cho and Lai, uh Mao Zedong and uh, it's another one of these CNN operas they're sometimes called probably by far the most famous we'll look at a scene two things happen here one first you'll hear the conventional uh, how are we the conventional repetition of, maybe maybe we'll let it go for a second, repetition that's sort of the background music for the whole piece. And then you'll hear, you'll hear this just repeated background, repeated lines. And I'll move forward to the contrast that for one minute, Adams, John Adams, the composer, will starkly reduce the amount of repetition in order to set in relief the repetition that the character Richard Nixon will make. So let's skip ahead. I'm having some problems with the DVD earlier. Actually, you might as well see how airplanes land in opera. Fast forward a bit, but you can still. So, here they reduce the amount of repetition to show sort of Richard Nixon's outward persona, and then you'll hear his stuttering internal persona as he sings to himself in a bit about how newsworthy this is and how important this is going to be. No repetition. the contrasting internal monologue. And you can count how much Nixon thinks news is important. another moment where um, repetition plays an important part that the characters can hear and this is when Mao Tun appears in the opera he's always accompanied by three translators uh, the malettes as they're uh, kind of called parenthetically in the libretto and in in the opera they translate English into English but they're always translating everything he says and repeating it and repeating it and sometimes translating it before he even says it so you can hear how um, At various stages, the other characters get so frustrated by their repetitions, in the same way they would get frustrated by a real translator that was uh, sort of being distracting. And. uh I had some bookmarks that aren't working now. then as soon as he says something they repeat it until the next thing he says let me do one one last kind of fun moment and that is um, a place where Pat Nixon is visiting a pig farm and in opera it's very difficult as opposed to film you can't really get a whole uh, crowd of pigs on stage so what they do is instead um, substitute one pig and a lot of repetition in order to um, sort of depict a whole gaggle of pigs let's say sorry let me go forward a little It's a very hard one to find. So they're singing pig. Pig, 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 pig. Kind of a a literal depiction of what you're trying to stage the very last um, thing I'll put on is the ability of when you've set up that repetition happens sort of without obeying syntax that is to say you just um, repeat whenever you um, want in the line and you don't have to wait until the end of a sentence to repeat a line like Mozart would or something it allows you to add extra meaning to the text that you otherwise couldn't do this is an aria uh, sung by Madame Mao I am the wife of Mao Zedong who raised the weak above the strong when I appear the people hang upon my every word but wait watch till so you can see where Adams puts the pause in order to repeat a line in order to create a second meaning That the line becomes uh, when I appear the people hang when I appear people hang upon my every word so sort of putting that double meaning in and she puts in all these sort of uh, attacks of Madame Mao throughout her own aria about herself uh, which is interesting so I'll just end there and just say that that we're really still trying to develop further and further analytic tools for trying to understand this repertory of minimalist music. And we're hoping that a lot of our most uh, useful ones so far have been borrowed from other disciplines. So I want to welcome your questions because I hope that maybe they'll help me in my research. Thank you.
5: I mean, how do you see the repetitive music in all kind of contemporary music, like, like electronic music, for instance? Can you talk a little bit about these structures, how, how do you see them reflected?
1: Well, one of the things that I'm most interested is is in inexact repetition, but, uh, and a lot of things happening in contemporary electronic music, I think is exact repetition where you're doing the same thing. On the other hand, there's the idea that, that absolutely nothing is ever exact repetition because you've never heard something that was preceded by five repetitions before. you. Last time you heard it preceded by four repetitions. And so there's more and more people are looking at, um, I'm interested in actually, um, you know, Interviewing people or even doing uh, studies where you, where you, you know, look at fidgeting or stuff. At what points do people sort of change how they re- react to music? Um, there's a lot of, for instance, um, a lot of boredom very quickly at repetition. And then sort of a second wave that comes in. And I think a lot of... Um, I, I, I don't know so much in particular about dance music. Is there, is there a particular piece or, or that you're thinking about... Um, but, but that just, just this, this sort of, um, you know, why do you repeat something seven times instead of six times? Do you expect that the person's attitude toward the repetition will change at a certain point? Uh, there was also, um, I'm reading, uh, what was it, um, Nam June Pak writing about um, the video artist, writing about the um, breaking of form. That he was talking about with Stockhausen, who was one of the complexity composers, and he was saying um, that uh, Pack was going to uh, Stockhausen to say that we need to um, preserve form more in um, in our contemporary music because form is it has has a structure and it's built like sex, and therefore we really want our music to be sexual, and therefore you we know, we we need to be very considerate about how we create these bounded structures or con- didn't use these terms, continuous structures. And apparently, at the same meeting, uh, Stockhausen said, uh, before Pack had brought this up, said, You know, we really need to destroy all form in music because it's reminiscent of sex.
6: Just sort of uh, expanding on Andrea's question, um, I'm wondering if you have looked at this, or I just want to point mm-hmm. this out that you talk, when you talk about repetition and, and audience anticipation, and in early. Um, Early rap music, not the oh. contemporary stuff. It was all about these breaks in the music, mm-hmm. because it was a, um, it was less of a vocal form. It was more about um, music form, and then which inspired the dance, the break dancing. And so the re- the re- repetition happened sort of in reverse. So it was this build up, and you anticipated the break, and then the break was very repetitive. It was this beat. And that is what the dancers were, you know, breaking to. So I was just pointing, Just wanted to, yeah, I mean, that's a different, sort of a different twist on, on what you're looking at because you're talking about how they break the repetition. And in this instance, the repetition is actually the break. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I've, I've done a little bit looking at, um, I mean, some, the, the closest repertory that I've looked at that has some of these categories is certain of the late funk Music that that, has, that is sort of That's almost of disco, way, yeah. yeah, exactly. So I, I I should go further. Thank you, because especially yeah. it's
5: interesting. Sort of riffing off of his question about contemporary music, and I, it, it's interesting to me that um, one of that one of your fo- one of your particular interests interests is in um, when the repetition. When there're irregularities in the repetition, or you know, it's almost like there's this mechanical repetition, but then there's some non-mechanical element, or some flaw, or something like that. The one of the the current the one of the contemporary electronic groups that might be interesting in that regard is, I think, the band uh, Oval, which takes Oval. Oval. Which takes CDs and then scratches the CDs uh-huh. to get these this sort of CD skipping repetition that then sort of jumps around. Um, at least that's my understanding of how of what their technique is. Uh, I also wonder if you could comment on um, whether the work of someone like Brian Eno, when he was doing tape stuff, mm-hmm. is more attractive and more interesting in some regards because. You know the sort of magnetic tape format is not exact digital, not ca- always capable of exact duplication. That sort of thing, if that falls within your purview. Well, let, let me
1: let me say something that actually about both of those uh, concepts that that is of particular interest to me, and that is um, human reproduction of um, some of these things that that could be, if not perfect reproduction, pretty. Pretty good reproductions. So, for instance, one of the things I've worked on is uh, taking Skippy and uh, Skippy CDs, and then getting um, you know burning an MP3 of them, and then getting the Skippy version, transcribing. Uh, I'm mostly working with classical music; it's my main repertory, I'll say. Uh, but then retranscribing what happens there, and then getting live performers to perform the new skipped version. And with Brian Eno, this has also happened. Uh, Evan Zaporin, who is also in the music department, is part of a group called Bang on a Can. And what they've done is they've re-recorded live a lot of these early Brian Eno, well, not a lot of them, just uh, just the music for airports. But uh, and that, that's sort of interesting to me in sort of how can you recreate something that was never intended to be recreated in this format. The other thing with the Oval group, yeah. yeah. I'll I'll look at that. This seems to be, there was a lot of work done with um, Kristen Markley back in, um, I believe, late 50s? No, later than that, maybe the 60s on um, what he'd do is smash uh, LPs and then glue them back together. And so they would get those skipped elements too. And so it's interesting to see this redone. I don't know if there's anything that's going to happen with iPods in the future or something.
5: Um, you mentioned you're more interested in sort of these irregular repetitions. Um, Personally. But, yeah, well, and I, I think that I, too, actually find that a little more, at least, interesting aesthetically. But I, I was thinking about the exact repetition. You mentioned, you know, there's a difference between the second and the third. Mm-hmm. And I was actually thinking about cell phone ringtones, uh-huh. uh, which are frequently, either you can get, like, mp3 cuts that are actually just part of an mp3 of a song, or they have those sort of polyphonic, more electronic-sounding ones. But it's sort of interesting to think about how somebody decides to cut out a particular section that is potentially going to be exact repeated. Um,
1: uh, what, what what makes something better for repeating in a single yeah. chunk? And, I mean, well, with the cell phone though. There's also the u- I mean, there's the utilitarian thing. You know what? I, you know what? What's make, we're going to make you more likely? i suppose, supposed to run to go um, pick it up at that moment. But yeah, I I've, I wouldn't know about that I know I mean just just jokingly with some uh, friends of mine who are professors over at the other institution uh, we're wondering for certain of the, the Nokia cell phone, are you where are you supposed to pick it up to fulfill the the sort of the premise hello or hello I'm not answering immediately because I feel like I'm interrupting the song yeah
3: no no I, I, I
1: i I agree with i and maybe that's why I mean there aren't so many um yeah songs that have that have you know really strong um sort of sort of cadence points that are used as ringers is it's also because those cadence points tend to coincide with uh unusually strong bass notes at that point which are hard to replicate or so there are probably other practical reasons I wouldn't know
5: oh, hi sorry right. um you talk a lot about expectations in terms of mm-hmm. like I know that's what
7: you're
3: yeah.
5: focusing on but how to what extent do you think that um, an audience's expectations when listening to certain pieces of music with a partition um, their their response as you're describing it is shaped by their familiarity with western music mm-hmm. or um, classical <laughs> music and how I mean to what extent do you think that's sort of like part of like a training of being involved in sort of western music and having, you know, measures and beats. I mean, obviously, if someone had grew up in an Indian classical music tradition, they would be looking at it really differently. But to what extent do you think it's related to people's understanding of a convention, or sort of like an inherent understanding of like uh, melody or like harmonies and, or something like that? You know what I mean? Yeah, can I,
1: can I give you the, the short answer now, and then maybe mull it over and see if I can find an exception? But I think entirely uh, shaped by what we know. I mean, you would have. Perhaps, perhaps there's some pattern recognition that we all share that that would help us, you know, like with the with the with that sort of hypothetical piece that maybe there's no um, there's no expectation. Training that would that would make it so that you would perceive that differently. On the other hand, may, maybe there is because maybe um, you believe that this is mostly a continuous form piece, but it's got to be bounded by the fact that you know um, pieces on average are three minutes long. If you're more into a cl- into uh, popular music, whereas a classical music person would say, "Oh my gosh, I've sat through two-hour symphonies." An, in- an Indian musician might say, "Oh my gosh, goodness, he really could." Do that for hours and hours on end. Um, If it might have something to do with, you know, here at MIT, uh, we don't, you know, it's not. um, I don't know Kent State in 1969. Odds are the speaker isn't going to continue doing this until everybody leaves three hours from now. So, but but I think with with the Bach example where I said, you know, if you're really into this. into this repertoire, you know that it tends to end after seven or eight repetitions, then that completely changes how you perceive it. Or um, with, the, with the Beethoven uh, excerpt, maybe if you, don't, if you don't know what a scherzo is, you're not going to uh, create the expectation that it should have ended at that point. And I think that, that moment is lost on a lot of listeners today, that sort of moment after the third part that it should have ended.
7: Um, do we have a personal <laughs> uh, story? Uh, the only Philip Glass I've ever heard was quite a while ago. I'm blanking. Was mm-hmm. it BAM in New York? Oh, uh, BAM. Yes. And it drove my husband nuts, uh-huh. uh, this thing. But about midway through the piece, everybody started getting up and milling around and talking. Yeah. And it was a whole reversal of role. I found this really interesting from the standpoint of opera in that usually there's so much tableau, there's so much going on, on the stage that you know the audience is wrapped, trying to get this sort of multi-sensory experience. But here, the, 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 everybody started socializing and talking and there was this rising crescendo of conversation in the crowd. So one I'm just curious was whether Philip is ordinarily ex- uh, uh, experienced like that or whether it's just the bam New York crowd <laughs> that did this and whether that repetition in fact releases audience from certain sort of uh, trained expectation and you know attention span and so
1: yeah, thanks thanks for bringing that up um, glasses early works up until around 1970 7, 78 he very much encouraged that his music was not at all played in well by music groups it was all played um, in art galleries and things like that where the ex, where the norm was to be able to m- mill around and that's how with Robert Wilson, whose plays, many of them went on 10, 11 hours much longer than Einstein on the Beach, um, where he had already set up this expectation that people should be able to leave when they want, uh, I haven't seen people like a level of conversation get that high. On the other hand, now these pieces are beginning to be treated like, you know, museum works where people shush when somebody does get up or, you know, people are paying. As opposed to you know nobody being able, wanting to go to hear these pieces, people are now paying a hundred dollars to you know for that seat. If the person in front of them stands up, you know the, just the change in how that happens. But Glass, in, in many ways, I would think um, the music the music reception has gotten tamer. Uh, there's a lo- more recent Glass pieces you're likely to you know sit down, not clap between movements. Um, all that stuff. And at the same time, the, the level of volume has dropped a lot. Um, I played everything far below the, the decibel level that it was originally meant to be experienced at, which was much closer to a rock concert. Um, and as that's dropped, your ability to socialize with the people around you without making so nobody could hear has sort of disappeared. By the way, was that, was that, did that happen to be um, Einstein in 92? In any way, was it intended to free uh, the, the focused attention that was. Yeah, I, guess, I mean, he, he does say some things about, you know, well, it's nice that it's a particular type of music where you can go away from the music for a bit, literally or figuratively, and come back and basically find where you are. So that, that I would yeah, say. That, a, yeah. that describes the experience
3: that I've had. Yeah, he <laughs> does,
1: he, I, I talked with him about a year ago about this, and he doesn't seem to. Uh, agree with that as much anymore, but his repetitions have gotten much shorter
2: uh, my question's actually uh, Kind of practical you mentioned that you've seen a change in terms of how people are receiving this music that more people want to Go see minimalist and experimental music. Why, why do you think that is?
1: Um, I mean in part there's you know, there's a lot more cultural Prestige in certain things. I mean I teach it in my classes my students, you know have to go as assignments when they as as people get older there's there's sort of um i mean i think there's there's a bit of the woodstock effect that everybody was at the original performance of einstein on the beach um so that that would be some of it i think also the the music uh, i mean it's just gotten less um sort of it's it's not as far out from what other music does now? I mean, you see, you know, you know how does this relate to other music that we listen to, you know, in the da- in, um, you know, to dance or to, um, you know, just as party music or or background. Uh, Einstein the Beach part of it was background for a Pepsi ad. Now I think we're, I think just we've we've gotten more. Um, we, we've we've gotten so so we our expectations for things changing after a couple of repetitions has dropped so much from um, the. Copeland dominated classical music world of the of the fifties and sixties. Short answer. I don't know if it completely answers the question, but we're thinking about
6: it. talk a little bit about visuals because I know um, with the Philip Glass pieces, more and more, he's he's really strong visual Oh, I guess he's always have. I'm just becoming yeah. familiar with his work in the last few years, but. With the Nixon piece, it's obvious because they chose a particular event that was visualized, but I'm wondering at what point in the process does he start to think about visuals and how is that incorporated into the
1: piece? I think no, Nixon in China is by John no, Adams. So. No, I'm, okay. I'm
6: just talking about those kinds of pieces in general.
1: Um, well, in, in general, uh, there, there isn't really a generalization. There's been a close collaboration with a lot of, minimalist composers and and other composers, not just minimalists, with uh, stage directors. In many cases, the director is either number one or number two in the production with the composer and the librettist might be quite a bit further down. So for instance, uh, John Adams' Nixon in China is perhaps more accurately the director Peter Sellers' Nixon in China. Uh, he sort of proposed the scenario to the librettist and to the composer, and decided that it would be, for the most part, um, a realistic staging. Uh, the next collaboration, "Death of Klinghoffer," was entirely an abstract um, set because it was a more tragic event. He wanted uh, the the hijacking of the cruise liner Achille Laurel in 1985, and so sort of didn't want. Uh, people running around in stage in Hawaiian shirts and things while um, while the family of the of one of the people killed on stage could be in the audience so there was kind of that tension Um, as far as as far as Glass's most recent um, work with visuals on the theater I don't know very much about it I do know the movies um, there's sort of three famous important well one trilogy of, of glass collaborations with Gottfried Reggio, the Katsi series. And, um, and those ends up also being a much closer collaboration with um, Reggio sort of coming up with the, um, with the images he wants to use in his film. Glass making music to go with it, Gottfried Reggio recutting the images to go with the music, and things, things like that, which doesn't usually happen at all. In, I wonder what
3: uh, call
1: Post minimalism. Post minimalism. Uh, it, uh, it's basically um, sort of. Uh, it's a. It's a trite answer, but but it's very few works um, like the music in fifths that we heard at the beginning, like the four organs, are still being composed today. Works like um, Nixon in China are. Uh, but to a lesser extent mostly people are interested in taking the repetition from minimalism um, and I- either going to two major directions one is there's a large religiosity uh, element of of religious post minimalist music by composers uh, Arvo Pert, uh, John Taverner where uh, where the repetition of minimalism is slowed down, and the, that instead of these incisive pulse, you have very long notes, um, often sung by choruses. So that's that's a big stream. The another big stream is represented by uh, people who want to merge more elements of. Uh, it's, I don't know. Hard rock is sort of, but 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 sort of uh, a, a loud rock-based ensemble with minimal music, often adding much more dissonant notes, so notes that are um, you know, maybe adjacent on the piano, things like that. And so uh, these composers, uh, Michael Gordon, David Lang, um, I think of, uh, well, I, I don't know, I mean the music I write, uh, lots of other people are really trying to bring in um, sort of... Uh, the accents and the dissonance from, uh, from the complex music we saw while also still keeping a pulse. And, and the f- many people feel that the loss of pulse rather than the loss of melody is um, one of the things that, that drove uh, people away from classical music in the
5: 20th century. I was
2: actually wondering if you thought much
5: about um, Andy Kaufman and how some of these ideas might translate to his performances, like if he goes on stage and reads The Great Gatsby.
1: I haven't thought about him at all in this respect, but uh, I think, thank you. I'll, I'll just say as <laughs> you know when not, when you haven't thought of something at all in comment, but thanks.
0: So the glass I know best is Quantus Quatsi, uh-huh. and I've been, I've been sitting here thinking about the role of the visuals in Quantus Quatsi. It was partially building on uh, uh, Tracy's question. Which does have some repetition mm-hmm. built into it. That is, there there is a pulse to the images of Qantas yeah. but there's not a literal repetition, as, as best I can remember. Very, and thin, very few yeah. of those images are repeated mm-hmm. in any literal sense. The, the pattern we're supposed to pick up on has to do with the editing and the camera movement and the acceleration mm-hmm. of, of motion in that, as opposed to the specific images repeated. And, I, and I've been trying to think is it possible? what is it about music as opposed to images that would allow us to recognize the repetition so quickly and so crisply whereas I suspect it might take us a lot longer if we were doing repetition on the level of images that were structured in the same way to begin to pick a, even up the pattern
1: pick up the pattern on the
0: variation of
1: it Right but, but the, the fact that an image has been repeated I think we can pick up much much faster than the fact that um, a note has repeated just because images don't really exist in time. Um, I, I, I know, for instance, there's a, there's a group, uh, what are they called? Ensemble Crash in um, Ireland that performs a lot of uh, glasses music that um, what they've done is they've gone th- combed through public domain um, image archives. And while they're playing, they're flashing images up, different images at about 12 to 20 frames per second, where each one shares some kind of structural element with the previous image so maybe if one had a strong circle in the center the computer's drawn up the next image that also has a circle and that seems to be the kind of repetition of mm. image that we see in and scottsy there's a there's a great um point where um where you see people all in a row going up these silver ele- uh, escalators at i believe it's grand central just the human people you know, sped up very fast, rushing up the escalators. And then you move to another 20 images in in 20 seconds or so. And then you see an image of hot dogs running along parallel conveyor, silver conveyor belts. And I think conveyor belts, and there's, I think, a lot of um, expectation that you're going to, you know, make those kind of connections there. Um, Yeah, it's more difficult to do in music, I think. Thank you. Thank you very much.